Welcome everyone to the third episode of season three of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest, amongst many other things. I was painfully described recently as a veteran journalist. Here's my slightly more youthful co-presenter, Chris Maguire. Well, thanks very much, uh, old boy. Um, yes, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud, and I hope you enjoyed Friday's Good News blog on LinkedIn, which was dedicated to you because I know you hate my happy, clappy news roundups. Now, I'd like to start with some good news of our own. I keep. I, I, don't, I don't hate it. I just find it really irritating. Okay, well, it's, it's close. It could be described as hate, or it could be described... It's definitely not. I'm not I don't well, hate anything. I got satisfaction at knowing that you were mildly, you know, miffed by it. Annoyed. Uh, which is why I might dedicate every future uh, LinkedIn post to you. Now, I keep track of Apple's podcast charts on a daily basis. And on Thursday, our podcast, Northern Spin, was, wait for this, number eight in Belgium. Fantastic. Number, number 10 in Bahrain. Thank you, Ursula, Ursula van der Leyen, who's watching it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, watching it or listening to it ahead of her talks with Rishi Sunak. Well, we are the reason why this Northern Ireland deal is so close to being signed, (laughs) and we are number 24 in the UK. We are bringing a new meaning to the phrase Belgian waffle. Well, that's (laughs) great. I actually laughing about that. Yes, that's great news, unlike uh, your dad jokes, but never thought we'd be big in Belgium. But what are we going to be talking about today? What are we getting stuck into? Well, we've got loads, actually. We've got loads. And there's all this stuff about the Northern Ireland deal. We're recording this on Monday, so we're expecting announcements today, you know, so we're not going to get, we're not going to do too much on that, but we are going to discuss it. So we're going to start looking at national politics. Keir Starmer, your hero, was in Manchester on Thursday to deliver his five national missions, whatever they are. Uh, and we're going to talk about his loathing, his words, not mine, of Boris Johnson. Then we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak's week. Um, uh, you know, are we going to get this post-Brexit deal over trading in Northern Ireland? Uh, are we going to see what happens to the Northern Ireland protocol? Will there be another Tory rebellion? And will his nemesis... Boris Johnson return. Yeah, well, we'll look at that in our On Manoeuvres section later on. There's lots of local political news as well, which we're going to look at. I, I, it's a curious one, isn't it, local political news? Because actually it's of only any interest to anybody where it's happening. But I think there are wider implications for the row in Blackpool. Blackpool South's Tory MP, one of the thick right that you quite like Chris. He's at the centre of a row with his own local party, so we'll be talking about that in Blackpool. Former Liverpool Wavertree MP Luciana Berger is rejoining the Labour Party four years after she left, blazing an intolerable harassment and hounding for being uh, Jewish. There's another no-show in the region as well from Transport Minister Mark Harper at the Transport Summit in Liverpool, where my colleague Neil Hodgson was in full attendance, getting some great stories. Louise Haig impressed delegates. That's Louise Haig, Labour's Shadow Transport Secretary, yeah. who you will claim never to have heard I've of. I've heard of her. Um, we're going to be discussing the sale of Manchester United. Congratulations to them and to all my friends who made the trip down to Wembley from Surrey and Ken um, to, and we're going to be talking a lot about the politics of football, whether politicians can, and also that's what I would call a bumper show. What do you think? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. You tell me about my jokes being bad and yet you squeeze in a line about, you know, Man United fans coming all the way from Kent and Surrey. Now, li- literally, I, I was looking at pictures this morning of my friends from Hyde, Chilton, Flixton and... Northwich, who are Man United fans, going to Wembley, and I make a cheap gag like that. Oh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> I'm really pleased for them anyway. Before we do all that, uh, I just want a big 
A big shout out to our friends from What Media who produce our podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation and they're one of the main reasons why the Northern Spin podcast is the eighth most popular podcast in Belgium this week in our in our particular political category. I can't speak highly enough of What Media. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, they feel like friends. Um, now, we couldn't produce Northern Spin without our sponsors as well. Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen. As always, we speak about Lily Shippen in part two. But Oscar, share our commitment to integrity. Oscar is an award-winning recruitment consultancy delivering talent across tech, digital, life sciences, energy, and construction. If you want to see more about them, just look at their video on their LinkedIn channel from their recent Global Vision Conference. They made a record 1,674 placements in 2022 and have excited plans for 2023 we're delighted that they sponsor northern spin right then chris we're going to shake things up a bit on the podcast this week so you describe me or you relayed to me from one of our listeners that i come across as too laborish well you would say that you're a conservative with a small case c yeah, you're definitely something with a small case. Yeah. So anyway, you've used that joke before I, as well. I know, I know. I, I actually enjoy telling that one. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, so why don't you give us your take on Sir Keir Starmer's speech in Manchester last week before I respond, and then I'll possibly, if that's okay with you, take the lead on what Rishi Sunak's been up to. Yeah, hundred percent. And when I was the editor of the Chorley and Leyland Guardian, I always said if we can't be First for the news, we've got to be best with the news as well. It'd be easy to talk about the whole situation with Northern Ireland, but I think we can provide insight on this. Um, so, yeah, last week, uh, Sir Keir Starmer was uh, in Manchester with all his chums, uh, some of whom I've heard of. And uh, he was. T- and I think last week we saw the best and the worst of the Labour leader. Um, one thing I did notice, and Yellow noticed it as well, is that Labour are now talking openly about two terms in office rather than one. I think it's not complacency on their part. I think it's a dose of reality about the size of the problem facing the next government and the can't fix those problems in five years, so they need 10. Now, the optics of the trip were really interesting. He came to Manchester again to deliver the speech, which I think is another nod to the north. His sleeves are rolled up, uh, and I think that's a visual we're going to see a lot in the next few months because he wants to create this impression of working hard to fix a broken Britain. Now, the only thing that let Starmer down was the substance of what he said. So let's shine a light on Starmer's five missions. Secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. And, and as, just to mention again, we're recording this on Monday. Um, you know, he's going to say something today uh, and he's going to be talking to the city about that very thing. He's also said that the UK economy is going to be overtaken by Poland. So that was the first one of his five missions. Then he spoke about making Britain a green energy superpower. Number three, build an NHS fit for the future. Four, make Britain's uh, streets safe again. And five, break down the barriers to opportunity. Now, Break down the barriers to opportunity. Critics say Starmer was uh, dropped many of the pledges that he made in 2020 when he ran for the Labour leadership. I accept that we're probably only 18 months out from a general election, but even you've got to admit, Michael, the veteran of journalism, it was a bit light on detail. Well, I think it's an easy and, if I may say so, Chris, a lazy way to criticise a speech to say that it's light on detail. If you go into the detail and you're then criticised as being too wonky or too boring that is using language that fails to connect with ordinary people because the actual business of government, of passing laws, you know, it's quite mundane. What I think he was trying to set out to do, just to place it in context and for balance, is is to set out what Labour's missions are, what their aims and goals are, yeah? My criticism is that the missions themselves are too vague. Now, 
you know, maybe we're we're actually at one at this and splitting hairs that you're you're thinking it's uh, light on detail. I think they're too vague. Um, the first one in particular is completely out of his hands. You know, what if America, what if Joe Biden in America decides to cut taxes to 20% or we get a Republican president in who tries to do a Liz Truss and goes for growth at all costs? Yeah, that's that's out of Starmer's hands, what other economies try to do. But it's right to focus on economic growth, but to make it the highest growth in the G7 is balmy. Um, the last one, break down the barriers to opportunity. I think that's it's very vague, but it also covers a lot of things. And it's just basically a restatement of what Labour's values are anyway. And it could be said to cover education. It could be said to cover housing, Not neither of which are mentioned in any of the other pledges specifically. We have got a housing crisis. We have got a generation of people around the ages of our sons and daughters who, um, who will find it hard to get onto the housing ladder in the way that we were able to. Um, and the, the Tories are making it ever harder with inertia in the planning system and a lack of you know, and that whole lack of pride in where we live, our high streets, things like that. They're the deep issues that have provoked real anger in communities that ultimately led to uh, the, the Brexit vote in 2016, which is seen as a big turning point in British politics. But nowhere does it mention tackling poverty or the rewiring of the constitution, which supposedly Gordon Brown's report was um, was meant to usher in a new era, era of how Labour delivers power. Now, when you read you know, you read the speech and you, you you read the pledges and the document that's on the Labour Party's website. It makes it clear that this is a roadmap, that this is a hint of a, a strategic direction. But that in itself starts to sound really managerial. Yeah, the sort of thing you'd expect in a, a company strategy day in a business like the co-op where he where he launched the uh, where he launched it. So. I don't. I know you don't really care about piddling things like policy details, and you prefer to focus on shallow things like the jokes and his dress sense and all that sort of thing. So inevitably, you don't really want to mention Starmer's interview with comedian Matt Ford on his podcast, The Political Party, which attracted a lot of coverage. So go on, tell us all about that. Well, in terms of in terms of Starmer's visit to Manchester and what he said, it was woolly. It was. It was woolly. Um, There's no detail in it. But I think, Michael, and if you don't mind me saying, you do miss a point. I might not obsess about policy detail like you uh, and other Labourists, but most of the general public don't either. You know, so that's why what I say, I'm a man of the people, Michael, um, even if you can't accept it. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and the one with Matt Ford is really interesting, actually, the political podcast. He's a comedian. Let me set some sort of background to this. Massive Knott's Forest fan, actually. Nottingham, Nottingham Forest. Forest. Nottingham Forest. They hate the word Knott's. Yes. Um, so he does his podcast and it's like you know it's like very matey it's over a drink uh, over a beer uh, possibly in Starmer's case over a curry as well and I think Starmer's appearance on that show was really telling it's his third appearance on the show I didn't know if he would do one this close to an election and one of the criticisms about Starmer is that he's a bit wooden or very wooden um, I think his interview with Matt Ford is an attempt to be seen as being more human but it was the tone of what he said that really interested me now a lot of politicians they're woolly in the sense that they tend to be fairly evasive and economical with what they say Starmer's guards were completely down and he was just completely honest if he wasn't he's a good actor he said he loathed Boris Johnson and this is what Starmer said I quote him is there anybody who's had any relationship with Johnson you know in any sense of the word who hasn't ended up in the gutter some people have criticised his honesty I thought it was refreshing and um, you know some people will say that he's playing to his audience but I just thought that actually Starmer came across as a real person um, do you think I'm being fair? No, I, I completely agree with you. He came across really well. My question back would be, 
how many people listen to Matt Ford's podcast. I know we do, and I love him. I've been to see him. I even went to see him at the Chorley Little Theatre where um, where he was performing a few years ago. Um, I, you know, I love Matt Ford's style, but it's very much aimed at politicos or you know, people who are more engaged in politics. But he's right. He came across well. Sometimes people pick up on that, like the national media did. They picked up on Matt's interview with Angela Rayner as well, actually, when um, she talked about crossing her legs and distracting Boris Johnson and all that stuff. So it does get cut through. People do listen to it. But, you know, who's, who's criticised Starmer for talking like that? Well, uh, it's a gen- genuine question. Yeah, who, no. who would criticise? Because I think people like our politicians when they kind of pull a tie off and kick their feet up a bit. Well, I listened to a lot of podcasts and it was either Coffee House Shots on The Spectator or I think it's probably the news agents. The issue was, was this becoming of a future prime minister? Um, me personally, I liked his candour. Yeah, well, politicians should always, I think, steer away from being something they're not. So it was good that Starmer did that. Um, but you the main thing that he needs to communicate to more, you know, to ordinary voters, people who voted Conservative last time that need to put their votes so they can be counted in the Labour pile next time, is to communicate that ultimately, fundamentally, that he's a decent man, he's honest, he's uncomplicated, and that he's prepared to be tough. And you look at all these other myriad of actions that he's been doing in the last few weeks, you know, standing up to the left in the Labour Party, which some people interpret as reneging on his promises. Um, I think he's been doing a lot of that. And the contrast with Johnson is, I think, a really, really good measure. Yeah, but one of the also one of the things about Starmer is that the focus groups still point to the fact that he's actually not that popular outside of his rank and file support, and that's where he needs to get the cut through. That's why I think appearing on podcasts where he comes across as a human being is quite telling. Um, now we started uh, this podcast by talking about your glorious leader, Keir Starmer. So I'm going to talk about Rishi Sunak now, um, and obviously he's in the news a lot today. In the news a lot over the weekend. The talk is that the EU and Britain are close to signing a deal over post-Brexit trading arrangements with Northern Ireland. That's going to be huge. This Northern Ireland protocol, which uh, which one of his predecessors, Boris Johnson, um, you know, brought to the party in 2022, 20, uh, um, that's, that's still hanging over everyone like the sword of Damocles. Now, clearly, Rishi Sunak's week or his prime ministership will be judged if he can get this deal over the line. What sort of week do you think Rishi's had? Well... This is going to be a really tough week, a really important week for him when when the history books judge the um, solidity of his premiership. The Northern Irish issue for me was one of the really strong arguments against the recklessness of Brexit. If he pulls it off, it's important for him to do something. And he's hinting that, Bor- that, he's hinting that Boris Johnson didn't do, which is get Brexit done. And I think it's really important. But what do you think about Rishi's week? Yeah, 100%. You, you, you uh, Rishi and his cashmere. Yeah. Well, I think it is. I, I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to the Westminster show, which uh, Caroline Quinn's last Westminster show on do you, BBC Do you have today. time to do any work with all these podcasts? No, I listened to it on the way into this oh. podcast at six o'clock on a Monday. And um, they were talking about uh, Rishi Sunak as well. The problem that he's got is he's in charge of a fragmented party. Now, we've spoken before. We're in agreement. Liz Truss was an absolute disaster. The sooner she can be uh, forgotten about, the better. Johnson is a serial liar. So Labour accused Sunak of being a weak leader. I don't think he is a weak leader. I describe him as an ultra-cautious leader as well. Um, it's worth remembering that Sunak inherited this 
problem of uh, Northern Ireland and the protocol. Uh, Theresa May couldn't fix it. Boris, I got Brexit done. Johnson couldn't fix it. I mean, that's the outrage. Former levelling up minister, Simon Seven Weeks Clark, which is what I'm going to refer to him now. Yeah, we've got Ben Blocker-Houch in. So Simon Seven Weeks Clark. There he is again over the weekend, last week, sniping on Twitter from the sidelines, trying to rewrite history by saying Johnson, quote, save the day from those nasty EU types in Brussels by securing a deal a few years ago. Incidentally, I do need to pick you up on something you said earlier. You said that I quite like Scott Benton. Don't like Scott Benton. Don't dislike him. I think Lee Anderson's different. I think Lee Anderson has cut through, but I'm not a fan of uh, Simon Seven Weeks Clark. Why, now, why do you keep giving him a platform then? No, I think we talk about him. I mean, it's interesting. We spoke about Lee Anderson and then he became the deputy chair of the uh, you know Conservative Party. That's down to me and you. No. What I thought was really interesting was how other people have come to Reese's defence. Um, so George Osborne, the former Chancellor, interviewed him a few times, said to Andrew Neil on Channel 4 last week about Boris Johnson. I'm going to quote you. Boris Johnson is interested in becoming Prime Minister again. He wants to bring down Rishi Sunak and he will use any instrument to do it. And if the Northern Ireland regulations, sorry, if the Northern Ireland negotiations are that instrument, he will pick it up and hit Mr Sunak over the head with it. So this Northern Ireland protocol is a huge headache for Sunak, if we're honest. Um, and, and it is a big issue. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to suggest that it's not. But I think in the North, it's not as big an issue. And there's a big announcement today, Monday, about energy prices as well. Uh, it suggested that energy prices are going to go up by 20% in April uh, when the uh, when the new cap's been agreed with Ofgen. So I don't know whether or not the whole Northern Ireland situation has the same level of cut through in the North as it does elsewhere. I, mean- I don't think it matters, Chris. I don't think anyone is saying that just because it's happening in Northern Ireland, it's not important to every citizen of this country. Uh, peace in Northern Ireland should concern us all, uh, as should, frankly, being honest about Brexit. I didn't see chaos in Northern Ireland, turnips for tea and labour shortages on the side of a bus in the referendum campaign in 2016. Brexit has been an unmitigated disaster. And the sooner they admit it, the sooner Labour pick that up as a as an issue to get to grips with. And Everybody who supported Brexit should apologise for the mess that they created, the better. Now, that's, you know, that's my gut talking, realistically, politically. None of that's really going to happen. But we'll talk a little bit more about Johnson and, the, and what I think Rishi Sunak should do about him when we talk about on manoeuvres later on as a bit, a bit of a hint to keep people to stick with us on this podcast. What 100%. Hopefully they will stick with us as well. Um, we've got uh, a lot more political chat, but I want to talk about the politics of football. We're both... Uh, passionate about football. Um, So we're going to talk about the situation with uh, Manchester United. So Sir Jim Radcliffe has joined and I'm not one of these people who's very good with name pronunciations, but I'm going to so have a I'll go. So I'll do it for you. You do it. Right? You okay. do it. Um, is the Qatari Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani Absolutely. So him and uh, Sir Jim Radcliffe have both uh, have both uh, put their um, you know showed their interest. They want to buy Manchester United, the new EFL Cup holders. Congratulations, to Manchester United! It's very timely because last week the government published its white paper on football governance and announced plans for a new independent football regulator to test the fitness of new owners. Um, I think that's hugely important. Now, I was looking through the uh, looking through that uh, much trusted resource, Wikipedia. Nearly every single Premier League football club is is foreign owned or part foreign owned with around half having American owners of some sort. Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur, Everton, all rumoured to be up for sale, whilst Newcastle United have been transformed under their new Saudi owners. Should we be worried about who owns our football club? And should we be worried if we were a Manchester United fan? I think Manchester United fans have got their own particularly concerns. Um, even when United were on the 
you know, in the last few minutes of the game, about to lift the um, Carabao Cup, the EFL Cup, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the fans, the big chant ringing around the stadium was get Glazers, get out of our club or some derivative of that. Um, I think they're quite concerned that the Glazers might want to stick around, that they've set the price too high and they just want rid of them. You know, you only have to listen to any interview Gary Neville does to, to make that clear. Um, but yeah, I think fans should be concerned and not just about the big elite Premier League clubs where all the big international money's going. You look at the effect that football finance travails have had on the likes of Berry, Macclesfield and Oldham in recent years. The business desk where I work, we ran a story this week about Morecambe Football Club, one of my local teams from the part of Lancashire I'm from, being eyed up by a 20-year-old tycoon. I mean, how's that work? And the EFL talking really tough about the fit and proper persons test and scrutinising it. But then they also criticised unhelpful speculation, which my interpretation was they were criticising the Morecambe Supporters Trust for issuing a statement to say that they hadn't seen any evidence that this guy had got any money. So, yeah, in an ideal world, Chris, I think it's fair to say every football fan would love their club to be owned by a wealthy local hero, much as my team, Blackburn Rovers, were in the 1990s by Jack Walker. But after he died... In 2000, the Family Trust had no real interest in splurging their fortune away in a game where the entry ticket to that kind of rich person's plaything had completely risen out of their league and it had become the preserve of oligarchs and nation states. So it then becomes a massive gamble as to which foreign owner takes over in the casino of football finance. Now, by any measure, Venkis, who an Indian food and pharmaceuticals conglomerate who took over Blackburn Rovers, their ownership since they took over has been a disaster. It's better now. It's more stable. And there's a sense that they're fundamentally decent, humble people looking to put right what went wrong when we got relegated from the Premier League and then subsequently down through the divisions with a turnstile on the manager's office door, it seemed at one point. But they've invested a huge amount to keep us at that at the at the championship level, which frankly, our supporter base on its own couldn't do it. But in the Premier League, ownership levels things up. That's the argument that Man City fans continually come back with. Why, why should we um, tolerate a situation where the biggest supported club in the world, they've got an 80,000 near on seat stadium that they can fill every week. They've got a global fan base with Vietnamese noodle partners and, you know, American auto parts partners, an office of hundreds of people in London selling commercial sponsorships. If, if, football was decided on who's got the most money every season, then it'd be Man United if the rules were strictly applied. City are looking to break that mould. And I think fans of Chelsea, City, Newcastle, all think that they can break through that ceiling in time and become global brands in their own right. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I think the dynamics between, you know, you mentioned City and United are going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Um, I'll tell you a story, if I may, where I can provide a bit of insight, which is the key word that we try and do on this podcast. I hope it's is... a bit better than you once met Jonathan Aitken. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that's available on the box set, actually. That was about two podcasts ago. If you missed that podcast, <laughs> thanks for selling that as well. So, well, but Mr. But, but Mr. You, veteran. But you stopped the clock and you went, let me tell you about political corruption. And I thought you were going to say, yeah, you'd, 30 you'd years witnessed ago. Brown, brown envelopes being passed around. No. No, so go on, what have you got? 
Okay, so Derby County. So okay. I've got a big personal interest in this. So last year, Derby County. Your personal interest, by the way, is your daughter plays for Yeah, my daughter plays for the yeah. uh, women's team as well. So Brilliant. I followed Derby County, you know, closely for about the last year or so. It was founded in 1884, which is when you started your career. Now, they were on the brink of extinction last year. The club went into administration. Wayne Rooney was the manager. They were docked 21 points. Uh, they owed the tax man millions and millions of pounds. Uh, Mal Morris became the devil incarnate in the eyes of a lot of Derby fans. Um, and 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 uh, and the favourite person who came forward, when they did this fit and proper person, the person who came to the surface was an American called Chris Kirchner. Now, I'd never heard of him. He was on Twitter. He got loads more Twitter followers. He loved doing Q&As, loved playing golf, loved taking pictures of himself playing in uh, pro-am tournaments all around the world, loved pictures of himself being on his private jet. The problem was, and this was a problem, he didn't have any money or he didn't have enough money. He gave the Derby County football fans, who are among the most loyalist fans that I've ever seen, he gave them false hope. And that's unforgivable. Now, I checked over the weekend. He's now been charged with wire fraud in the US, faces up to 20 years in jail, if convicted. Clearly, he's not been convicted of anything yet at all. If you compare, if you compare Kirchner, he was like in his mid-30s um, and a wannabe, to local businessman David Close, who rescued Derby County. He's a uh, worked in the construction sector. He rescued County from extinction when he bought the club. David Close doesn't do a lot of publicity. And here's the thing. If you go to a Derby County women's home game where the average crowds are among 350 to 400, among the best in their division, the odds are David Close will be behind, will, will be behind one of the goals. He just, just stands on his own. And I was chatting to him recently and I said to him, I said, David, I said, don't be down mind me saying this, but they'll be unveiling a statue of you at Pride Park. And he said, why? We haven't won anything yet. And that's what he, he's, he's like the Jack Walker was for you to Derby he is just a guy who's got the interest of Derby County at heart the problem is for every one of him there are five Chris Kirchners and that is a big worry I also heard um, recently Dean Hoyle from um, Card Factory he owned Huddersfield Town and after a while they just get weary of it they just they're required to keep pumping more and more of their fortune into football and you know it gets to the point where they they don't want to do it anymore. They can't keep splurging the money because they're up against, you know, to compete at that level, to keep in the Premier League, you know, foreign oligarchs and all sorts. And it's it's unsustainable. Um, I, I should point out, by the way, Chris, that we do have a statue to Jack Walker at Ewood Park, a local yeah. hero, because, of course, we got promoted from the Premier League when Derby County and Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland all had richer owners, all spent more money that season, but we got promoted. And then we won the Premier League in 1995 and we won the EFL Cup in 2002. <laughs> and on that note, let's go for a break. Welcome back to the Northern Spin podcast, the second part. Now, Michael, you've interviewed thousands of CEOs, probably in your career, millions. Um, in your experience, how important is a personal assistant or an executive assistant? Yeah, no, it's really important, Chris. I've lost count, obviously, in my long, illustrious veteran career in journalism. And you know that uh, the, the business leaders really value their PAs, their EAs as a sounding board and are a huge part of their success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Lily Shippen is a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. They've got bases in Manchester and London. Lily Shippen recruit a range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, 
office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many, many more. They work with businesses of all sizes and are experts in placing exceptional people with exceptional businesses at the right time. They don't just know how to recruit HR and business support staff, but they know when to recruit. So if you're an MD, a CEO, a business leader in the North, or anywhere, remember the name, Lily Shippen. Right. In a minute, we're going to discuss who's on manoeuvres when we speak about the people who we think are on manoeuvres politically up to the dark arts. But before that, we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of some of the other political stories that have caught our eye. And what, as Chris, has Conservative MP for Blackpool South, Scott Benton, been up to? And is there anything to see here? Yes, there is absolutely something to see here as well. So, now, I'm not suggesting for a, for a second that the Tories Deputy Chairman, Lee Anderson, who we've spoken about a lot on the Northern Spring podcast, has a love child. He clearly hasn't. But if he did, he'd be called Scott 30P Benton. Because Benton is uh, is a cut off the old block. He has an opinion about everything on Twitter. More often than not, nothing to do with Blackpool South. He wants to be seen as the slayer of woke, like his great hero, Governor Ron DeSantis, and possibly the future president. Um, president of the US. He, uh, incidentally, Ron DeSantis has got 4 million followers on Twitter and follows just one person, his wife, Casey DeSantis. That's the sort of insight that we like to provide on this podcast. Um, Benton's had a spectacular falling out, and I mean spectacular falling out with the leader or the former leader of the Conservative group on Blackpool Council, a guy called Tony Williams. He would be in the category, like yourself, of being a veteran. Um, Tony Williams has since resigned. Now get your popcorn out because I do need to provide an update. Benton has accused Williams of trying to blackmail him. Some Williams denies. Apparently, what? What's he tried to blackmail him over? Well, this is maybe it's his particularly white, you know, his white teeth, but no. Um, apparently, Williams wrote to Benton warning him of a vote of no confidence in the Blackpool South MP by Conservative councillors who were unhappy at the selection of some candidates for May's local election. This is when it comes down to he said, you said. Benton claimed Williams attempted to blackmail him by offering not to publicise and publish the vote of no confidence if the ditched councillors were reselected, something Williams denies. Over the weekend, Sarah Smith of Labour, who's standing against uh, uh, against Benton, uh, did actually publish on Twitter that vote of no confidence confidence where a number of Blackpool uh, Conservative uh, councillors um, signed that vote of no confidence. Now, I've done a bit of digging and the way I understand it, it boils down to this. This is basically a difference of opinion and a mega clash of personalities. Williams thinks the Tories' best chance in the election, in the local elections in May, and probably in the general election as well, is with more centrist candidates, while Benton, outspoken Benton, wants to be more outspoken and wants more outspoken candidates who aren't afraid to put their head above the parapet and make some noise. If Scott Benton, Scott, if you're listening, if you want to come on the Northern Spin, we'd love to hear your views. But at best, this episode is pretty unedifying. What do you think? Well, I used to go to Charlie Caroli's Circus in Blackpool when I was a kid, and it looks like it's made a bit of a comeback. It's uh, it's, it's very entertaining for those of us without a stake in the game, but you do start to wonder, what about collecting the bins? What about making decisions on highways? What about putting bids in for levelling up money? What are the councillors doing? I know they're an opposition group on Blackpool Council, but uh, there's certainly a real clash of cultures here. Ultimately, you know, that's politics, isn't it? It's a clash of personalities and it's a storm in a polystyrene teacup at one of Blackpool's seafront cafes. But I think it very seriously does highlight the very, very important changes in the Conservative Party and the rise and rise of the thick right. 
Yeah, I tell you, doing one for the kids here, but I'm reminiscing about your trips to Blackpool. What was it? Uh, Carolis? What was it? Charlie Carolis Circus at uh, Blackpool Tower Ballroom. Absolutely, that's one for the youngsters there. <laughs> among our growing number of listeners, now uh, on a more serious point, something you want to talk about is uh, former Labour MP uh, Luciana Berger, the former MP for Liverpool Wavertree. She's made a very welcome return to the Labour Party. Yeah, well, you say welcome return. It's not gone down too well with the uh, with all the worst people in the world on the Corbynista left. So four years ago last week, the Independent group for change was formed. It was a group of mainly Labour MPs led by Luciana and Chuck Ramuna. Remember him? Yeah. Um, and my friend Anne Coffey, the uh, Labour MP for Stockport. They said enough was enough of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and weren't prepared to stand on that banner anymore. And they walked out of the Labour Party. A few decent Tories walked as well, including Anna Soubry and Heidi Allen. Remember them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luciana had a particularly tough time in the Labour Party. Her local party in Liverpool Wavertree in particular really turned on her. She had death threats from Nazis and she had to have police protection at Labour Party conference. Jeremy Corbyn remains to this day completely unrepentant about how she was treated in the Labour Party. Now, Chris, I supported the Independent Group for Change. I was surprised more Labour MPs didn't walk. I thought they might learn the lessons of the SDP in the 80s and seize the opportunity to break the mould of British politics. You see, I'm old enough to remember the SDP. Um, But where the project really died was the decision to stand candidates in the European Parliament elections of 2019, of which I was one. I was on the Northwest list, number four, which when I told Matt Ford about that when I interviewed him, he said, oh, hard luck. Yeah. Um, not, we, we absolutely got creamed. It split the group tactically. People fell out quite um, quite visibly. Chucker joined the Lib Dems and stood in the 2019 general election, as did Luciana in London in Golders Green. I thought it might lead to a real realignment on the centre of British politics and it might amount to something like a reverse takeover of the Lib Dems. That was never going to happen. The Lib Dems weren't particularly keen on too many people joining them. Um, Now, I saw Luciana last year at the Kite Festival speaking in a panel on uh, women in politics and she just looked completely different. She looked like her weight had been lifted from her shoulders. She looked happier, more content. And she didn't give any hint that she was in any way interested in going back into politics. She was quite quite pleased at being relieved of the, the vitriol and hate that was thrown at her. And she read a few messages out, which would just make your absolute your blood turn to ice. So in the week that Jeremy Corbyn gets told he won't be standing, Keir Starmer sends a clear message. Now, usually, Chris, you're banned for five years from the Labour Party if you stand against them in an election. I snuck back in because I stood against them in the European Parliament elections, if anyone noticed. Not many did. Uh, and now Luciana... Well, did anyone vote for you? What? Did anyone vote for you? Well, you get you vote for a list um, on a party, and you know, we, we got about 4%. It was pretty... Pathetic, really. Uh, the Lib Dems did really well in that election, and the Brexit Party were the one that won. I think. I mean, he, the Tories came behind us. They were. Yeah. They got absolutely creamed as well. It was a real strange election, but yeah. But we've been uh, welcomed back into the party, and I'm. I'm really pleased that Luciana is. She's a really capable politician. She did loads on mental health awareness and poverty, and um, yeah. And if she has a return to frontline politics again, that's going to be a good thing because she's someone of a, a real rare talent and a great communicator. You mentioned. Um yeah, you mentioned Chuck Ramuna earlier. I was just thinking, actually, he has disappeared of the faith of the political earth. He has. Yeah, um, he has. Yeah. At least he certainly has in my world. Um, I interviewed so in, Luciana. It, just, just on Chucker. So it took a while for me to realise this, but Emmanuel Macron's party is called En Marche in France. Yeah. yeah? 
the initials EM. When that group decided what its name was going to be, it was Change UK, the same initials as Chucker Amuna. I think, and people said to me, you're just hitching your wagon to a, a vehicle for Chucker Amuna's ego. You're going to you're gonna make a fool of yourself. And I went, no, no, it's genuine. So, so is that just a guess on your part? Well, it's a coincidence, isn't it? Well, Chucker Amuna, if you want to come on Northern Spin Podcast and to break your silence, you'd be more than welcome. Interestingly, actually, we did lay well, down the... you interviewed Lucy well, we, Tell we me did, about that. Well, we did lay down the gauntlet last week for uh, politicians to come on the show and uh, the silence has been deafening. So, uh, Chucker, if you want to come on. Yeah, I interviewed Lucy Berger, Berger in 2016 at the uh, at the IFB, the International Festival for um, Business. Oh, yeah. I alongside to that. It was good, wasn't it? Well, no, no, I don't think it was as good as it was made out to be. I think there was a Maybe lot. Maybe it was of, 2018. I went. To. Yeah, there was two. There was one in 2016. There was one where um, Richard Branson came to uh, gave us a oh, speech. Okay. I think that was that was the one where I interviewed him actually. But and, you, you like her? You um, right? Yeah, she was on a panel with the then Mayor of Liverpool, Joe Anderson, uh, and the then Walton MP, Steve Rotherham. They were standing to be the uh, the next Metro Mayor in Liverpool. And Steve Rotherham obviously won it. I thought she came across as um, as very good as well. Actually, she came across as honourable. And, um, you know, listen, I'm not pretending to be uh, a huge Labour supporter, but uh, I think it's a good move to have her back because I think the Labour Party need people like that. Politics needs people like that. But also I think it's, I think politicians and politics generally need more women, high profile women in politics. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So, so we've spoken a little bit about the uh, trials and tribulations of Luciana. One of the things she got was death threats from Nazis, which... Uh, there's a real hotbed of activity, wasn't there, around um, national action in the Northwest around the time that she was prominent and she had death threats from them. Someone went to jail for it. Um, but you want to talk, therefore, a little bit about the surge in far-right activity in the Northwest. I think our job on the Northern Spin is to flag up different things that people might not think are relevant to them. Um, we spoke a couple of episodes ago about the uh, violent scenes outside a hotel in Knowsley where asylum seekers were being held. A police van was torched. It was horrendous. It was not the sort of attention we want on the north. Last week, the MP for Knowsley, Sir George Howarth, veteran like yourself, highlighted the involvement of far-right groups from outside Knowsley in the violence in a separate incident. Uh, and it didn't get as much attention uh, as the event in Knowsley, but there were protests outside a hotel a few days later in Rotherham, which was being used to temporary uh, to, 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 to house uh, temporarily um, refugees. Yeah, refugees. Yeah. Now, apparently the far-right protesters in Rotherham were outnumbered 10 to 1 by a counter-demonstration, but the politicians and the media alike, they just have to be so careful about the language they use because this could spiral out of control, and it's a worry, and I think I'm concerned about the rise of the far-right. Do you think we need to be generally more worried about the rise of the far-right? Yeah, we should. We should always be worried, and we should always be vigilant, and it's why it so disappoints me that politicians like Lee Anderson, Scott Benton, and Suella Braverman are quite happy to trot out some far-right tropes in order to just fuel that kind of division that the far-right thrive on. I think it's really irresponsible. No, I agree. So let's go on to our section on manoeuvres. Who does your simplistic misunderstanding of the term on manoeuvres lead you to this week, Chris? Well, I'm going to throw a name in the uh, in the mix. Uh, you might have heard of him. Uh, I think uh, I think, and I'm also going to throw in a conspiracy theory as well because it doesn't end at the name. So, so many of the conservative problems can be traced back to one man. Lee Anderson again? No, oh. no, no. And that one man is, like drum roll, please, Boris Johnson. Alexander Boris de Peffel Johnson, to give him his full name. Yeah. yeah. I agree with you. He's a complete menace. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad you've, you've looked further than just, you know, Lee Anderson is a symptom of Boris Johnson. 
So the you're more obsessed with Lee Anderson than I am. Um, the Northern Ireland impasse, right? Yeah. Really complicated. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. I have a grasp and an understanding of it. The BBC have done a really helpful reality checker of how Johnson has said one thing and done another. Yeah. I mean, that's as good as accusing him of being disingenuous with the truth. What is relevant is that in June 2022, Johnson introduced the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which he said would give the UK the power to ignore large parts of what had been agreed. You said yourself, about this was Brexit, you know, this was, you know, Johnson, I got Brexit done. He didn't get it done. Friends of Boris Johnson, which in itself is an, an interesting phrase because I don't think Boris Johnson's got any friends. They've warned Sunak about ignoring the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Now, he is clearly on manoeuvres. He wants to be the Prime Minister again. I noticed actually that he's made a lot more visits to his Uxbridge constituency where the predictions are that he's going to lose his seat. I think Boris Johnson and Mr. Johnson, if you want to come on the show and give us your side of the story, feel free. I think he's a horrible man and he's on manoeuvres so much, I don't think he knows when he's not on manoeuvres. Yeah, the ego and the hubris of Boris Johnson, this appalling man, is a real stain on our politics. And it, 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 But for now, it represents a real fundamental challenge for Rishi Sunak's leadership. Keir Starmer said on the Matt Ford interview and... You know, every opportunity he has in the House of Commons that Sunak is fundamentally a weak leader. If he wants to prove his strength, he should do what he needs to do, which is take Johnson on, confront the problem, kick him out of the Tory party, support the investigation into Johnson's conduct when he was uh, during the COVID pandemic, when he was having parties and having other parties up in the in, in his flat. If not, he will continue to haunt Sunak's leadership until it comes to its ultimate end. He needs to call his bluff. So, Chris, you mentioned a conspiracy, which I'm not quite seeing. Tell me about So, you know, about that. you know and I know that actually um, Boris Johnson should be sent to Coventry or wherever the equivalent of, uh, you know, political nothingness is. Um, but he won't be. And this is the reason why. On Friday night, I'm sitting there drinking my whiskey and Coke, which I do do on a Friday night. And I'm looking down our Twitter feed. Uh, we are uh, growing. Our audience is growing on Twitter. And I noticed that the Stafford Conservative Association had passed a motion to prevent the Stafford Standing MP Theo Clark from being their candidate at the next election. Now, Theo Clark has just returned after six months on maternity leave. She had a baby in August last year. But there's a pattern emerging, and this is where the conspiracy is, of Tory MPs who called for Johnson to stand down as Prime Minister being deselected. Veteran Conservative Damien Green was deselected by his local association, as was Sally Ann Hart, the Conservative MP for Hastings and Rye both of whom very publicly criticised Johnson. Now, do you believe, Michael, in coincidence? Because I don't. Yeah, I think what's happening here is there are selection processes, in particular where there have been boundary changes. The same thing happened in um, Penrith and the Borders. There's been uh, changes to the boundaries up there. So it means there'll be you know two into one doesn't go. And generally speaking, the candidate that gets the preference amongst the Conservative Party membership are those that um, supported Boris Johnson, because that's where the rump of the membership is. This is the membership, let's not forget, Chris, that elected Liz Truss with a fairly thumping mandate. You know, they love Johnson. And, this, and, and this they, is, they love that kind of base active, um, politics. There was a picture that Therese Coffey put out recently of her being readopted by her constituency in West Suffolk or whatever it is, or coastal Suffolk. And basically they looked about 90 Every single one of them. It looked like a terrible, unreflective of British society group of people. 
Yeah, there's nothing wrong, incidentally, with looking 90. I mean, you as a veteran, you probably get confused looking for 90 yourself. But I think the point you make is spot on. But what it what it underlines, though, is the fact that even if Rishi Sunak wants to throw, throw Boris Johnson away, which he should do, he won't because the membership, a lot of the membership still like... Boris Johnson, and they're willing to look beyond his numerous failures. And that's the problem. Um, well, they need to remake the Conservative Party in the way that Keir Starmer's remade the Labour Party. And they'll only do that in opposition. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, who else do we think is on manoeuvres? Well, on Saturday, <laughs> me and Mrs M went for a walk to Bolton Abbey. We do like it. It's very nice up there. If you've not been, you should go. Um, now, and I was looking down Twitter, as I often do, and there's a MP, not a big name, a guy called Robbie Moore. He's the Conservative MP for Keithley and Ilkley. Now, if you know Ilkley, you'll know it's it's not a million miles from Bolton Abbey. It's very oldie-woldie. It's very nice. Now, he's pushing a private member's bill to allow Keithley and Ilkley to break away from Bradford Council, which is poles apart from Ilkley uh, to set up its own unitary authority. So basically what he's saying is Ilkley, nothing like Bradford, which is the council responsible for like over half a million people, but his constituents are paying a higher council tax bill and they're not getting, in his words, a very good service. Now, I don't think Robbie Moore's going to get anywhere with his private members bill, but it seems to me that he thinks his best chance of retaining his very marginal seat in uh, Keithley and Ilkley is by going hyper-local and away from national politics. What do you think? Yeah, I think there could be something in that, and I think we should keep an eye on it. Keep an eye who's going local. Could do that as a regular one every week because I think we're finding a lot of Conservative MPs are doing it. Um, James Grundy, who's the MP for Lee, towards the western end of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham's old constituency. He's been doing something similar to get Lee out of the uh, Wigan and... uh, and therefore out of Greater Manchester. We've seen High Peaks MP Robert Largan basically run his office as if he's an independent Green MP, um, hoping that something turns up and by some miracle gets over the line when he's up for re-election next year. Can I ask you a musical question? Right, okay. You said we need to keep an eye on who's going local. What was that song? Going loco down in Acapulco. Acapulco. Who was that? I have no idea. That should be our theme tune. I really, really don't think it should be. (laughs) On that note, let's go for a quick break. Welcome back to the third and final part of episode three of season season three of Northern Spin. Now, I know you've been a busy boy, Michael. What have you been up to? Well, I went to the launch of Andy Spinoza's book, Manchester Unspun. I talked to the host for the evening, broadcaster Michael Crick, before he headed off to Old Trafford to see the game against Barcelona. Uh, I helped him out on his new mugshots podcast series, which he was pretty pleased about, where he ran a profile on Angela Rayner, including interviews from former Stockport Labour Group leader Andy Vidai and my friend and former guest on this podcast, um, Elise Wilson. Andy's book, Chris, is absolutely brilliant. It's such a rich and well-considered story about a city that's changed so much, and he's really thrown his heart and soul into it and about what happened. He's welded together pop music, property development and politics and a really, really intriguing, well put together mix. So anyway, are you going to read it? You, you you, no, read no, it. no, absolutely. I think the thing is with that book, it's a serious it's a serious piece of work. I mean, Andy Spinoza, he's not from the North originally, but he's lived up here for over 30 years. He's passionate about Manchester. and uh, It's like Tony Walsh's poem, Some are born here, some are drawn here. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And uh, no, I will look at that book. And Andy Spinoza is somebody I've got a lot of time to uh, for. Um, you mentioned uh, Michael Quick's new podcast, Mugshots. I listened to the profile that he did with Angela Rayland. That was uh, that was really interesting as well. Quite enlightening as well when you look at um, parts of her childhood. It's really tough for her. Um, on the work front, I hosted a Dragon's Den style pitching event in Liverpool where six businesses pitched to a room full of angel investors that was uh, that was very good and as you know I'm a big fan of women's football I watched Burnley women beat five women last week 7-0 it's interesting because mm. Burnley don't play their games in Burnley Burnley women they play their home games in Leyland as well um, just want to mention the passing of two high profile characters the first was the football commentator John Motson who died at the age of 77 famous of course for his sheepskin coat you know I'm 50 you know my childhood was spent listening to commentaries by John Watson we didn't have we didn't have three or four live games every day to choose from you literally had one live game if you were lucky and the England games as well but I think you met him didn't you I have met him I met him once at um at Old Trafford, not Old Trafford, at Loftus Road, home of Queen's Park Rangers in the 90s, and where I sat next to him, we discussed Dennis Irwin. And what struck me then was just how engaging and, and fun he was. You know, he took my opinion seriously. It's no big deal, but he just seemed, he could have been aloof and arrogant, which I imagine a lot of commentators are, fond of their own opinions. But I just he just seemed like a really warm and genuine guy. Andy Spinoza, who we've just mentioned, interviewed him for the Manchester Evening News when he was a journalist there. And he posted the cutting this week. Really good interview. And he obviously really liked him as well. A lovely piece. Uh, my father-in-law, Eamon Curran, met Motti at Turf Moor a few years ago. And they got on like a house on fire. Same sort of recollections that I had. Um and he was on a tour going around every ground in, in the country as much as he could in his retirement year, doing these pieces for Match of the Day. Um, Motti was certainly more engaging with Eamon that day than a certain former Labour spin doctor who runs a podcast who just flirted with my wife and insulted me. Yeah, and it should, just for the record as well, you do get on with this uh, former Labour spin doctor very well indeed. Um, in fact, I think you follow each other on Twitter. Now, um, no, who, so who do you want? Someone else died. Yeah, somebody else died as well, actually. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's press uh, press chief, Sir Bernard Ingham, died at the age of 90. His uh, son wrote a very warming tribute on Twitter. Now, I um, I didn't know him personally. I heard a lot on, on the radio and stuff, but he was a central figure in Thatcher's reign from 1979 to 1990. Born in Halifax, he had a reputation for being straight-talking. Uh, but an interesting fact about him is that he started his career as a local journalist in the Hebden Bridge Times and would get that newspaper sent to him at Downing Street and later became a, a journalist at the Yorkshire Post. Yeah, I'm, I have to say, Chris, I don't like to speak ill of anybody, really, or particularly ill of the dead, but... Um, I'm afraid Bernard Ingham's epitaph will be the appalling doubling down that he did on the events of the Hillsborough disaster, where he blamed the Liverpool supporters for, um, for for the deaths of 97 people on that day, and he refused to to admit what any number of inquiries and hearings had done over years, and just go back to his base instinct. Um, which was blame the fans, which the Sun newspaper did, and and he doubled down on it as well. So, yeah, no, I think we've got to be honest. And uh, you know, I I I I looked at the uh, I looked at the cuttings before coming on the show, and uh, yeah, you're right. 2016, he uh, was referring again to the uh, you know the Hillsborough tragedy, and he didn't didn't apologise. Um, we spoke about local newspapers in last week's podcast, and I know you've had some feedback as well, haven't you, Michael? <laughs> yeah, we have. So Chris Bird from Quest Media, who you know, full disclosure, I, I operate a radio show on their <clears throat> on their frequency, music therapy, nine o'clock every Sunday night, and I write a column in the. Glossop Chronicle and the Tameside Reporter newspapers. 
And Chris got in touch to say that he didn't like what we said in the intro to the podcast, that a lot of local local newspapers are in terminal decline. Had he listened to the full podcast, he would have heard us saying that proper investment in local news pr- provides dividends and that that newspaper that I write for is a good example of serving its community well. And given that Chris has said that he thinks hyper-local media is thriving, I will be putting my application in for a pay rise. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what I did say was that um, groups like Johnston Press, as was, and Reach have destroyed value and inflicted uh, real wounds of their own making on the newspaper industry. I also had a good catch up at the Manchester Unspun book launch with Simon Donoghue, formerly of the Manchester Evening News, currently with Transport for Greater Manchester. And I just wanted to clarify something else. I might have given the impression when speaking about Ruben Singh that that was a solo effort. It really wasn't. We did our, we modified our entry in the rich list in Northwest Business Insider. And then Simon went and did some really, really hard digging and some great reporting on a proper expose of the sham that was Ruben Singh's uh, claims to wealth, very much as a forerunner to Stephen Bartlett. Top guy, Simon, really, really respects his work and Some people, by the way, Chris, the other bit of feedback is that we didn't go far enough in talking about Stephen Bartlett last week. Some people are quite obsessed with this issue, aren't they? Uh, Yeah, and I think the thing with Stephen Bartlett is Stephen Bartlett is a success, whichever measure you use to measure success, whether or not it was social chain, whether or not it's his podcast, whether or not it's his books, whether it's his social media. The question is, is he as successful as he said he is? Um, But uh, yeah, people are entitled to their opinions. And and, and I concur with what you said about Simon Donoghue. I've met him, I like him. And uh, it's nice to be getting some feedback. Because ultimately, what we want is feedback, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Absolutely. And as, as everybody has said, we're journalists. We've got a duty of care to get our facts right as well so any tv and film recommendations yeah absolutely this is the third part my wife calls it the fun part and we always talk about uh cinema visits also i'm trying to make you more northern as well i know i feel like i'm letting you down on that front but um i say we mentioned the gold last week finished it um they're not going to do any spoilers brilliant loved it um we went to the uh me and mrs m went to the cinema again on thursday and i, I i'm going to put it out there i'm going to save our listeners some money here if you're thinking about watching a film knock at the cabin i i can't tell you how bad that film was it starred interestingly harry potter star rupert grint who has disappeared as face of the earth since his, since his appearances in harry potter i did that thing that was really annoying actually i lent over to mrs m while she was eating her uh, maltesers and said i think that's the fella of harry potter um, fairly soon after that, I fell asleep, and uh, that was my best uh, that was my best memory of that particular film. What have you been doing and watching? Yeah, well, uh, books wise, uh, obviously, I've uh, been delving back into Manchester Unspun, but uh, I bought a book in from News from Nowhere, a radical bookshop in Liverpool. Have you ever been to a radical bookshop? I bet you haven't. Have you? I don't go to many bookshops. Full no. stop. Well, I bought a book called The North Will Rise Again by Alex Niven, who's a lecturer in English literature at Newcastle University. I liked his other. His previous book, um, and so I delved into this one as well. He's a writer I quite like, so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that. I will report back. Um, But we watched Better on the BBC, which I'm only going to say, I'm going to give it 6 out of 10. It was okay. It's set in Leeds, so lots of location spotting, and it's about a corrupt detective trying to get away from her drug-dealing sponsor. 
and uh, like I say, it was okay. No can more just, than that. Can I just say as well, actually, um, the guy in Better, which I've not seen, but I quite fancy watching. It's not got the best reviews, but the guy in it is a guy at Broadchurch, isn't he? Um, Where he had obviously a West Country accent. Yeah, absolutely. He's got absolutely. an Irish accent in this, but but and it's good. But but, but I, I like him. But he goes to the same church that I go to or used to go to. I've not been for a while, and he goes uh, on. Uh, he goes to Christmas Mass, and I was at uh, Christmas Eve, and I turn around and I said. That's the guy from Broadchurch. <laughs> so sorry if you're listening, Mr. Guy from Broadchurch. So he lives near you? Um, his family do or his in-laws do. Wow. Yeah. Well, really, 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 really nice guy. Well, he's, he's good at accents, as I can definitely yeah. say for that. So that's all for episode three of season three and part three of Northern Spin. We do things in threes on this. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Our latest review is from Anthony Morrow, the chief executive founder of Open Money, who we mentioned last week. He gave us a five-star review and he wrote... Only started with Series 3, but fantastic show. Love the insight from media and journalist perspective. Also, the very clear positions taken on subjects without being deliberately contrarian, as most topical shows can be. Excellent stuff. Not That's sure, great, not though, sure, isn't it? Yeah, great, yeah. And I like Anthony. I'm not sure he's still the CEO. He's certainly the founder, All and right. he's heavily involved in lots of businesses in the Northwest. Got a lot of time for Anthony. Well, loves his dog. Loves his dog. Well, whatever you call yourself, Anthony, thank you very much for that. Uh, don't forget to press the subscribe button. Button. Next week on Northern Spin Extra, we've got uh, we've got a Northern Spin Extra with Naomi Timperley. You don't want to miss that. Follow up on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One. Watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. Our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen. And thank you to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor, and my name is the younger version, Chris McGuire. <laughs>